Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm David Breer and this week we bring you a bumper episode of all of the interviews recorded live from Money 2020 in Amsterdam at the beginning of this month. This episode we're bringing you a CEO special with interviews from top fintech CEOs and leaders including Ralph Hammers from ING, Des McDade from Marcus by GS UK, Nuno Sebastio from Feedseye, Zach Perrett from Plaid and Bowden from Starling, Frank Yan Rizero from Yolt, Tamaz Georgiades from Raisin, and lots, lots more. Let's get this started. Kicking things off with Ralph Hammers from ING, fresh from opening up Money 2020 main stage. Welcome to FinTech Insider Interviews from Money 2020 in Amsterdam. I'm Jason Bates. It's my pleasure to be joined by Ralph Hammers. Hello. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? I'm pretty good. We're, we're here sort of, you know, mid-morning, just getting into it. How are you doing? Yeah, very well. I just came off stage and uh, I think the energy is good. It uh, it's, looks to be really busy. So I'm uh, looking forward to the three days of Money 2020 here. Well, I think uh, we'll, we'll see where we're at by Wednesday afternoon, shall exactly. we? Exactly. So for the very few people who don't know who you are, could you give a quick intro? Tell us, like, who's Ralph Hammers? Sure. I'm Ralph Hammers. I am the CEO of ING. Uh, we're a bank, but we also believe that we're the first fintech in the world. We started ING Direct some 20 years ago, uh, where we basically already saw the potential of uh, online banking. And we basically built model, uh, business models around the channels rather than that we apply channels to the bank. I think that's our secret. We're doing the same with mobile banking as we speak. So you were here last year, gave a keynote. You've just given a, a keynote this year. What's changed? What's changed in a year for ING? Well, on one side, not a lot changed. I think most of the trends that we saw coming actually have materialized. I think that digitization is going faster. Uh, customers embracing uh, mobile first is actually coming on much faster as well. We have now 26% of our customers have never interacted with us other than through a mobile device, not even becoming a client. So all of that is basically as we had expected. I think there is one thing that has changed uh, specifically also for us, but I think for the whole industry, is that with all the benefits that digitization brings, it brings some additional risk as well if it comes to you know, uh, the, 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 the high frequency of interaction, the ease of use. Uh, that's also attractive for the ones that we don't want to be uh, going through the banking system, which is, you know, uh, so we'll have to step up in our role as a gatekeeper to the financial system in order to prevent uh, financial eco- economic crime from happening. And I think that has been a the theme uh, across banks and neobanks over the last, soon the last half year. And that's also a theme for us. We'll really have to step up on that. Because I think um, a, lot of bank, a lot of people look at challenger banks or neobanks or new digital interfaces and say, well, it's just great. It's just an app. It's just something on the surface. But there's a, there's a fundamental operating model change that comes along with that. Uh, and I know you've been working very hard on Agile at Scale, which I've heard you talk about a number of times. Can you t- t- tell us about that? How's that coming along? Yeah, so clearly, if you want to be as competitive as some of these platforms are, <clears throat> I think one of the big challenges for the kind of the older institutions is that the other players, they work from one instance, as I call it. And from that one instance, they basically develop cross-border services. Uh, and that's exactly what we're doing for ING as well. So basically, we're standardizing the systems across all of the markets in which we work. We are standardizing the way we work, which is uh, agile, and we have pushed that all the way through. So we've really moved from a more hierarchical, functional-driven organization to a, a very flat 
multifunctional organization and speed up the development uh, that we can do as well. And then also we launched what we call uh, Touchpoint Architecture. And uh, what we mean by that is that all of the coders that we have within ING have to work with a specific description of how to develop the code in order for it to fit like Lego blocks. Okay. Uh, and that makes that we can actually reuse a lot of what coders in Poland develop in Spain or what coders in Belgium develop and use it in, in Romania. And we tried that by sending a small team to the Philippines and said, uh, we asked them to, to open up a bank as soon as possible using code that was already available within ING. And within 10 months, they opened a mobile-only bank, fully licensed wow. in the Philippines, only using code that was already available within ING. So they took the, the best practice on uh, becoming a client, the best practice on transferring money, and they put it all together and they opened the bank, not by cutting a ribbon, but by uploading it in their app store, right? Sure. That's how you open a bank these days. <laughs> so that's a componentized, API-driven, exactly. Jeff Bezos, Amazon approach. Exactly. Um, lots of people talk about that, but just can't make it happen. You know, compliance and risk and the organization and the processes that go in a bank. Like, what's ING's secret? You know, lots, so many people are looking at this. Not many people are making it work. I think there's two secrets. First, uh, we just do it. So uh, I know a lot of companies, uh, whether they're in the financial industry, but also industrials, they're coming to visit us as to how we moved uh, from an old style of working to agile way of working. And basically, we just push it through uh, over the weekend. Uh, that creates a lot of anxiety in the organization, also a lot of passion and energy, right? So, it's, it's, so people find it very challenging. Uh, and, and people find it very motivating at the same time. So you have to manage that, but we just did it. Uh, that's one of the things. The other thing is that, uh, as I've said before, where we differ from many of the other players is that we don't look at uh, the new technology as a new channel. Basically, we look at new technology as to how do we have to change our business model to go with that yes. technology, which is completely different. Yes. You know, uh, other banks would be looking at how can I display all of my products on a mobile screen and we don't think like that we basically think like if people use mobile for their banking they use it five times a week three minutes rather than one times a week 15 minutes that means they don't have a lot of time and they're looking at a small screen so you have to limit the number of products and you have to make it much more easier to purchase yes and that's the way we think about things so we change the business model to be consistent with the technology and the customer behavior. I think so many people don't get that, that actually there's a difference between digitizing what came before and truly digital offerings. There are those real-time, intelligent, contextual offerings that, you know, that make something interesting. Um, but I think today you mentioned the elephant in the room about managing risk and about how that really works. And while that traditional three lines of defense model and the, the monthly compliance meeting that looks at new products, like that was great for its era. It just, does it really fit now? Like, how do you manage risk in a, in a world of rapidly iterating, componentized digital offerings? Yeah, so basically, if you look at the different types of risk, in the market risk, things are going much faster. I think digitalization can actually help you. And we understand that risk a lot, uh, very well as banks. Credit risk, we understand very well as well. Uh, clearly, you move into different kind of uh, credit scoring, pre-scoring, real-time scoring, whatever you want to call it by screen scraping or API uh, connections in order to use the data. 
but the area of Ristat is really one that is changing because of the technology is the area of what I call non-financial risk. There is one specific thing, one specific challenge that uh, digitalization and mobile first brings, which is that customers that would normally always be able to call you or go to a branch in case of a system that was down, a product that was malfunctioning, and, uh, what have you, currently can't go anywhere. If the app is not working, they may be scared. Sure. Now, if something is really dangerous for a bank, it's customers that are scared. So rather than running your app times around 99.9%, you've got to be up 100% of the time. Uh, rather than, you know, uh, putting money in a vault, you have to make sure that your IT security works, that your data security works, that your data privacy works, that you only use the data for those customers that actually have given consent for it to be used. It goes even further. Society expects us to be a gatekeeper to the financial system in order to make sure that uh, money laundering is not happening because the big criminal organization use the banking system for that. And Clearly, with all the ease of use, they see a beautiful business case there for themselves. So you've got to step up that as well. And next to being masters in market risk and credit risk, we have to become masters in non-financial risk as well. All of us, the banks, sure. the fintechs, all of us. Because together we make this ecosystem. Uh, and it's that ecosystem that has to make sure that it is safe. And that... That follows on nicely to last year you were talking about allowing uh, collaborators and getting, creating these platforms of, of uh, partners in order to work on ING's platform. How's that going? Is, is that a long-term strategy, the kind of platform-based gatekeeper? Yeah, so it's, the, it's certainly a long-term strategy, but it's happening as we speak. You know, with all of this, you know, strategies are not things that at a certain moment it is there. You know, a strategy is a journey. Uh, and you're changing your model towards where you think it has to be. And basically, it never stops, right? Sure. Specifically with technology that keeps evolving, with machine learning that keeps evolving, artificial intelligence, uh, cloud computing, uh, quantum computing, all of that is still to come, right? So for sure that the strategy itself will never stop. But the steps in, in becoming more open uh, to have collaboration around innovation, but also collaboration around, you know, offering uh, commercial services. Those steps are actually being put in practice. And I think it's the only way that if you want to be taking on some of these platform companies as a bank yourself, by becoming a platform yourself, you've got to have a strong brand and you've got to be open. Because you can't be credible if you only offer your own products. Can't be credible. I mean, we hear from Silicon Valley companies their, you know, 30-year vision and their six-month strategy. You exactly. know, no one can really look, you know, beyond that horizon. Exactly. So, so sort of what's ING doing or what's it doing in the, in the small areas, in the kind of tactical first steps along that journey to get there? So this is exactly what we do as well. This is what we call the zoom out, zoom in, right? So we know where we're going. We want to be the platform. We want to have one set of systems, one uh, way of working with data, one agile way of working. But the changes to get there are quarterly steps, as we call it. So we have, uh, we look back one quarter, we look ahead two quarters. Okay. Every quarter we do this. Uh, because we work agile, not only 
basically uh, the people that develop. But we as a board work agile as well. So we have our monthly meetings, stand-up sessions as a board. We have our quarterly business reviews uh, on the back of which we give guidance for the next market where basically uh, uh, squads will have to bring in their plans in order to improve an app, in order to improve connection into the, into the outside world. Uh, they have to ask for money in order to become more safe and secure. And basically those markets with the guidance that they get from the board on a quarterly basis, they, they basically allocate the different money according to those priorities. And then the squads go back, or the tribes go back basically, and they start working in their squads in order to develop that. So we have two weeks sprints, these squads have. So every two weeks we have changes. Every two weeks we have improvements. And on a quarterly basis we review it and we look ahead for six months. And basically it's continuously matching as to where you think you have to be 20 years from now with where the next six months are going. Uh, so it's a big change because normally, you know, banks used to work with three-year plans and MTPs and that shit. Yeah, yeah. But we change them every quarter. So what have you learned by going along this journey? What do you know now that you wish you'd have known a few years ago when you started out here? Well, honestly, we would have been even much better prepared if the trends that we predicted, that we actually knew how fast they were coming at us. Which means the technology trend, but which certainly means the change in customer behavior and the, the adoption of mobile as the principal way to interact, basically in any industry, not only in the banking industry. If we had known that five years ago, we could have gone even faster. Uh, but then again, you know, everybody who can really look into the, into the future, sure. you know, wouldn't be working here anyway. So it's, uh... and, so, and, and what inspired you on this journey? Because, you know, from someone who's got a great history of being a, being a banker to start to talk about tribes, squads, agile moving along. Like, was there, there, was there particular advice or particular things you saw in the market? You said, actually, that's something I really want to grab onto. Six years ago, when I took over as CEO, I had the... Uh, the privilege to go around the world for like three, four months as a handover period between me and, and, and my predecessor. And I traveled the world. I looked at different things happening at that moment in time. I could free up my mind and basically test a couple of things with him as to where he saw things going and where I saw them going. And clearly, uh, I visited ING uh, units. I looked at the DNA that, they, uh, that ING has, the innovation DNA, uh, the tendency to create low entry or barrier banking, sure. you know, which we do very well, yeah. uh, which we show with ING Direct. But I also connected that to a lot of the trends that I saw with Google's, Spotify, Zappos, and all of those sure. companies uh, as to what they were doing, how they were changing, uh, and how they were developing. And uh, clearly, you know, I wanted to learn from them. And so that's where I got the inspiration from the strategy to begin with, but even more important as to how to get there, the agile way of working, the way that you have to go to one set of systems, the importance of data. And so if you're here next year, giving a keynote again on the amazing things that have happened, what will you be talking about, do you think? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, I would really hope that by that time we have in one of our markets a clear evidence 
that the openness of banking uh, that is really working to the benefit of the consumer to begin with, but also as a new business model that is truly a promising one going forward. I think that would be a very nice one to, uh, to have my, uh, my speech around. <laughs> I look forward to hearing that talk in a year's time. Uh, Ralph, thank you for joining us. See you next week. Thank you. I'm Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Des McDade, who is MD at Goldman Sachs in the UK, talking all things Marcus. How Thanks. are you, Des? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks, Simon. Thank you for being with us. Um, how are you uh, enjoying the show? You were up talking yesterday. How was that? Yeah, so this is actually my first time at Monday 2020. Um, so it's been a bit of a revelation just how big it is and how many companies are in this space and actually working and hard. And I, and I saw some good presentations yesterday. I had the opportunity to go on stage as well, which was kind of exciting and terrifying at the same time because there were so many people in the room. Yeah. Um, but it was great. And the feedback we've had so far has been great. And I think for Marcus, just the opportunity, you know, two, three years into our life that we're making a splash in this market, we're making noise, is really pleasing to see. It's super interesting. So for anybody who uh, hasn't heard of Marcus, do you just want to remind us uh, what is Marcus and, and what's the journey been like? Yeah, so Marcus is Goldman Sachs uh, retail banking offering. Um, so it's Marcus by Goldman Sachs. We launched in October, I think it's 2016, in the US. And we literally started with a loans account. We've now got loan savings and a personal financial management tool for Clarity Money. We launched in the UK um, in September 2018. And it's gone from strength to strength. We have 4 million customers, something like $46 billion in customer savings, $5 billion in loans. Um, and the business is growing um, really at a really nice pace, really. And in the UK as well, there's, uh, there's quite a few, there's quite a book of deposits building there. And uh, I think, what was it, 250,000 customers was the last Yeah, so, I mean, the UK launch was phenomenal. Um, you know, I think we surpassed all our expectations when we launched. Um, if you think back to the 27th of September, we launched on our first day. We actually um, opened 13,000 accounts on our first day. Within two weeks, we had 50,000 accounts. By the end of that month, we were pretty much past 100,000 accounts, and we kept growing up to about a quarter of a million customers now. Um, I just think the, the sort of the acceptance and the take-up has been phenomenal, but what's also been really great is the customer reaction to our proposition. So the, you know, we have a, an amazing brand, but actually we spent a lot of time making the account opening process as slick as possible, um, the speed of our transfers, and that's what customers have said they really, really like. It's, it's easy. I want to come back to that because the thing I hear most often is, um, oh, the, it obviously did well. They're buying customers. It's the 1.5% savings rate. This is the ING Direct model. So uh, there's definitely that element that, that, that the price is there attracting people. Talk about the onboarding and some of that customer feedback. What went into that onboarding? And do you think that great onboarding can be a competitive advantage? I think, just to go back a little bit, the price is important. You know, when we spoke to every customer, no customer said they wanted a bad rate. You know, that, that wasn't, that <laughs> wasn't really a terrible well. rate for you know, my savings. Uh, you know, if you have the best onboarding journey in the world, but you have a terrible rate, it's not going to work. Right? So having a good, good rate is a proof point. And one of our advantages is very much we're a low-cost model. We can pass that advantage on to our customers. But the other part is actually rate is not everything, you know. So having an amazing brand will actually attract people as well. So, you know, it gives the attention part of it. But the onboarding process is almost like the proof point that when I come through, I've just said there's no compromise to this. Actually, why shouldn't I get this? Yeah. Because, you know, it takes me a few minutes to open an account. 
a few minutes later, I've got the money in the account, I'm earning interest. If I want it back a couple of seconds later, it's back in my account. I think that speed is what surprised people, it's just the simplicity of it. About um, 15 to 20 episodes ago, we had uh, Ali Patterson from Fintech Finance on the podcast, yeah. on the news show. And in real time, uh, on our podcast, as we were recording it, elapsed. It took him about you know, sort of seven minutes to get from, uh, hey, I'm going to, oh, they say it only takes a couple of minutes to open. Yeah. I'm going to try this. And then we got lost in the conversation. And then he went back to his laptop and he went, oh, it's open. And there was something quite nice about that. And I do think there's something uh, that's kind of interesting about that fast sign up uh, that people have really, really yeah. missed. But also, like how stripped back the product is. Once you log in, there's not lots of buttons and bells and whistles. It's like, here's your rate. Do you want to take it out? Yeah. Well, our customers told us they wanted simplicity. So, you know, so many products in the market have so many conditions. And, we, and to an extent, I don't understand that. I've worked in the market for an awful long time. But I sit there and I think when you're designing a product and you start saying, hey, you can have this product, but there's this compromise and this compromise, you're thinking, why am I creating so much choice and confusion yeah. at that point to it? So I'm just making it harder for the customer to buy my product. So why am I making it harder it, for the customer? It's almost like I want to have a great rate to get attention, but I don't really want you to buy it because I want you to do something else and you, and you trade down. And we just thought it doesn't have to be difficult. And our customers said simplicity was what they really, really wanted. They want value, they want transparency, they want ease, they want simplicity. But simplicity is kind of the core of what we're doing. And, and you know, when we launched, we were very conscious it was the minimum product that we could actually do. Then we will add more things to it over time. Yes, this is um, just the beginning. When it launched, it was, it was yeah. clearly this, this really strong product offering. Um, and that simplicity was extremely, extremely powerful. Uh, but I think then we're gonna talk about the brand as well. Um, so you, you mentioned it briefly, that sort of brand was encouraging. But if you look at what you've seen in the market, I, I've seen two types of plays from banks, which is they've tried to take their entire existing brand and do it almost exactly, but on new technology. Or they've gone so far off brand that you see uh, sort of uh, Yolt by ANG, you see Franks by ABN or this sort of stuff where it's, it's almost a, a complete sub-brand. The example I often give is that can work if you're Telefonica and you're doing gift gaff. Yeah. Like that's a really good case study. But there was something powerful about Goldman Sachs that was close to the Goldman brand, but still different. Yeah. So talk to me about how you, how you thought about using that brand and combining the best of both. So I think when we spoke to our customers or to our prospects at the time, um, you know, we asked a lot of questions about what they thought about Goldman Sachs. And there was a little bit of, you know, will, will, we, will we see negatives coming through from that? And we really didn't. And what we saw was actually people said we were premium, powerful, and prestigious. And you yeah. think those are amazing words to sort of to sort of sit with. And you think, why would I why would I sort of like not use that massive amount of sort of power in your arsenal it within your brand part of it? But they also said we weren't really accessible to them. They talked about, you know, we were we were a bit like coots. We were kind of we were for the elite, so we weren't yeah, sort of like, and, and and that part was a little bit damaging for us. So so Marcus was that attempt to be a little bit more accessible. Um, making the product start from a pound was another reason to say that we were for everybody but it was why shouldn't you get the access to something like goldman sachs to the quality to the execution to the sort of value proposition that we offer to our high-end customers how can we deliver that to people what i love about that is way? the level of understanding that's gone into how people perceive the brand and um brands are always uh, kind of you can see it in a matrix of sort of uh, 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 warm and approachable yeah. and dominant and competent 
and you definitely had dominant and competent, but what you were missing was warm and approachable. So how can you bring that warmth and approachability without losing that, that competence side? Uh, it's a really interesting balance. So simplicity appeared to be the answer to that. And actually that can drive so much about, um, once you understand your brand's positioning, then that can drive the proposition. And once you've got the proposition figured out, then technology and market entry and everything starts to figure yeah, itself I mean, out. It has to start with the customer. And you know, Marcus in the US started very much, you know, when, when Goldman Sachs started, it was all about finding out what customers really wanted, what they thought about their finances. And the UK followed exactly the same model. Um, and we do so much research and so much talking to our customers. In some ways, it seems sort of insane that, you know, I, I think on Thursday night, I'm going to Manchester to listen to a, a, a session with customers as well, just to actually understand what they're doing. And if you don't have that, and it's another reason why our call centers are actually with us in our head office, because we want to listen to people. That's how many banks uh, and our banking organizations and our financial services organizations can say that. And I think uh, a lot of people use the word customer centricity, like if you say it in a mirror enough times, it will show up. And actually, it's really simple. You just need to get in front of the customers. Um, but you talked about Manchester and talking to customers. Do you have plans for uh, expansion beyond savings or is the goal still to grow the savings capability? Well, so we're very new in the UK in terms of a business yet. We're not even a year old, but, but you know, undoubtedly we will expand beyond savings. Um, you know, the first thing for us is almost like building out what we do. And, and one of the lovely things about Goldman Sachs is we're not necessarily in a rush. You know, the, the, sort of, the timeline is in our, uh, in our control, really. And so that means that we want to get it right. We'll, we'll go quite carefully and judiciously in terms of how we sort of execute forward. But at the same time, you know, we are looking at new product lines. And if you look at the US, they have you know, a loans offering. They're building a consumer wealth offering. They have the Clarity Money app, which is a personal financial management tool. Uh, and open banking in the UK, you know, gives you an opportunity that says, you know, that, that's kind of a really nice playing field for us to go to. I think for us, we've got lots of options on the table. What we haven't done is decided on which one we will do. Um, and we're also looking at Germany as potential entry at some point as well. So we have, we have a lot of things on Why our roadmap. Germany? Was that the, the next market post potential Brexit? Is it, is it a, um, interesting market in its own right? Savings market? I think, I think lot, Lots of reasons for Germany. One is the size of the market. So, so when we look at any opportunity and when we looked at the UK and Germany as our sort of first expansion into Europe, it was about the size of the market. Could we differentiate? Was there something that Goldman Sachs could differentiate? When, and were there consumer pain points that we could address within that? If you look at Germany, it's a large market. Um, Goldman Sachs is building a presence there now. So we have banking licenses and we're building that capability. Post-Brexit, we will need to build balance sheets maybe in, the, in, in Europe. So there's a need for us as a business to have funding in, in, those, in those markets. But it's a timing question for us as well. So when we want to go into it um, and we have to decide, you know, is it a deposits entry into um, Europe or is it a lending entry? Interesting questions for sure. Um, so looking ahead um, to the future of Marcus, not just by country, is there a platform story here as well as the direct-to-consumer um, kind of story? Yeah, so, so our platform story is really what we call a digital storefront. Um, and the Clarity Money app, in some ways, becomes our, our hub because that's, that's what it at its heart is. It's a, it's a way of pulling together people's needs. And, you know, we talk about customers' needs in terms of spending, saving, borrowing, and protecting as the sort of core financial actions that people do around, around their sort of needs. But, you know, at the start of that, we think we will build a digital storefront. We want to serve millions of people and we want to have products either that we manufacture ourselves 
uh, where we have a competitive advantage or a need to, to do that, uh, or we'll distribute other people's products where we think they're better. I mean, that's a, a really interesting place to be because that marketplace model uh, is, an, is a thing that you find possibly easier to do with somebody who's entering the market that knows where you want to play, that's not, you're not cannibalizing yourself no, where I, somebody's I better than you. One of the great things about our entry is because you know, this is a whole new business line. We're a large bank, but actually we have no retail presence at all. So we don't have those decisions about legacy business lines and we're suddenly saying, so we're not Kodak saying, hey, I don't, I don't want actually to stop my film products now. I'm not Blockbuster. Yeah. You know, we are sitting there going, this is a whole new opportunity for us. There's everything is available and really it's just how much we want to get into it and where we think the opportunity lies. It's almost lie. a weird case study is like what would happen if a bank started again? Yeah. Because you, you almost never see that because they're always starting from a position of how do I drag all of my technology into the future rather than what would I do if I started again? And, and people often talk about big techs and Apple and, and, and those sorts of players and, and uh, Facebook and Google. Do, do you see those players as, as competitors in the future? Um, I think potentially the, the challenges and the barriers to entry, I think, in banking are, you know, the capital, the balance sheet, the regulations, you know, all of that part and governance is actually quite intense. And I think for any of the big Californian giants to get into that, you know, they, they have to open their eyes to it's quite a hard entry model to get yeah, into that. It's a lot more than running yeah. your own corporate and, treasury. And we're not really starting again because we take all of that with us in terms of we already have an incredible governance framework within Goldman Sachs. We already have a huge balance sheet of almost a trillion dollars. You know, we're a capitalized bank. We have all the licenses. So we have the controls and the governance to run this business. What we're really saying is actually we're doing it on this side. Now we're just moving to this side of the, uh, the fence and, and looking I, after I customers. love the idea of one day somebody uh, wearing a T-shirt saying we have all the licenses. I, I just, uh, <laughs> uh, just made me laugh. So listen, um, what's next for you and for Marcus? What does, the, what does the future look like? So I think it's still very early days. And, and you know, I think there's a really strong future for us as a business. Um, we've started really well. Um, for us, we have to continue to keep executing well. We have to keep looking after our customers. And we have to actually deliver on what we promised. As long as we do that, I think we've got a really bright future. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about what you're doing at Marcus? So marcus.co.uk. Um, and we have marcus underscore UK as our Twitter handle. Um, we're there. Come to our website. Um, we're always happy beautiful stuff as for me you can find me at sy taylor on twitter and you can also find us at 11fs or at fintech insiders on twitter if you like what you've heard remember to subscribe to the podcast on itunes people uh, and we love reading those reviews so pass the podcast along tell your friends um, and tell everybody about the show uh, that's all from us for today um, thank you very much and goodbye for now I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by Nuno from Freeside. Nuno, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you always get this buzz on the first day of the event, so it's kind of like pretty awesome. Right, you've been, you've been hectic. You just came off the main stage, uh, letting everybody know about Freeside. How was that? I mean, you know, when you, to us, it was really important to talk about the bigger issues. So that's why, you know, when, when, when the opportunity to talk with the Ambassador Rice came about, I really grabbed on it because it's not about, you know, selling our stuff and our technology. It's all, I mean, of course, we're here to do that, but it's also... I think it's more important to see what do we do in this world, in this financial environment world, and, and what's our role in it. You know, 
the disruption that's happening, challenger banks coming up, we're just talking about it, you know, and, and, and in our small part, what's our contribution to it? And because in, in the end, we're all here to make, you know, society a better place to and to foster um, innovation and make sure we all have, leave this place a better one than when we came in. But remind everybody who doesn't know, what is Feedside? Yeah, so at Feedside, well, our job is to make sure all the payments ecosystem uh, the risk is managed and we're safe. Whenever you buy something, whenever you sell something, that you do it and you trust the entities involved. You know, fraud detection, you might call it, account takeover, uh, tr- uh, money laundering purposes to make sure that the system is trusted um, and as it should be. And it's safe for us to put our credentials, our, our information, our IDs. And we're certain that it doesn't get in the wrong hands. And you guys are a relatively young company. You've been around for a few years and have some pretty decent clients. So um, how would a client discover you and, and, and what would they be using you for? Yeah, I mean, so fortunately, I mean, we've been, you know, we had a good win on, on our sales. So we're used by some of the largest financial institutions out there. All, pretty much all the, 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 the relevant challenger banks use us. I mean, you're talking about, you know, Marcus, uh, like Goldman uh, and others. Um, so to us, we're at the stage where, you know, the organizations, they know who we are. But of course, I mean, if we talk about, you know, risk management, fraud uh, detection, uh, we're typically probably the youngest company in the lot, but probably the most important one of the companies that are consulted. We've been growing, you know, 70, 75% year on year compounded. It's uh, uh, almost 500 of us in the company right now. Uh, we raised $86 million. So, wow, you know. that's really significant. Uh, so talk to me about um, the conversation you had with Ambassador Susan yeah. Rice. Uh, why was that such an important conversation for you? I mean, we live in a world where, I mean, first, it's, it's important for us, you know, make sure that, you know, we, we transact and we operate in a world that is conductive to business and it's open. We want banking to be open. We want society to be open. And today... What you see, globally speaking, is a lot of restriction mechanism, protectionism in some countries, Europe, US, um, all the trade wars that are going on. And I think it's really important to have, even in our forums, the people that have been through it. I mean, Susan Rice, she was national security advisor to President Obama. She was US ambassador to the United Nations. It's really important to hear from people that have opened as opposed to close yeah. uh, borders and do, you know, close innovation. And, you know, when we were talking with her, she was very, very insightful. And I think it's really, really, really valuable that we all learn from history and from what these people have done. Brilliant. If, um, if I worked at a bank and I wanted to find out more about Feedside, where would I go? Uh, Feedside.com. That's number one. But also ask around in uh, risk departments. People will know us. We're pretty much... Uh, engaged with all the relevant banks and challenger uh, startups out there that we are proud to count among our clients and partners. You know, thank you for being on Fintech Insider. Thank you. Thank you. you. I'm Jason Bates at Money 2020 Amsterdam. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Zach Perret, CEO of Plaid. Hey. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. How's it going? Very well, very well. It's been a busy conference, but uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here for the chat. You seem to be making lots of headlines, um, but for those people living in a, under a rock that don't know who you are who, or what Plaid does, can you give us your elevator pitch? Sure. So Plaid, we build uh, infrastructure for fintech companies. Um, the core concept is that um, most of the functionality that, that you might have in a, in, in a bank branch when you're standing there and talking to a banker, uh, we want to take that functionality, wrap it in a set of APIs, and deliver that to you as a consumer wherever you want to go. 
So that might mean that you're using uh, an app to interact with your bank account, be that to pay a friend, apply for a loan, make an investment, transfer some funds. Um, and we build the infrastructure that allows that app to connect to the bank account on the back end. Okay, so is this sort of a, a middleman play that you connect banks with fintechs or do you go back direct to consumers? Uh, we go directly to the, to the fintech products. So we, we, are, we are kind of a B2B provider. Um, but the way that we think about our, our products is that we are very consumer oriented. So uh, mission is to make money easier for everyone. Um, and truly, we, we think about how do we, how do we get the best possible products in the hands of consumers, which means we spend a great deal of time on building an ecosystem, enabling developers, creating uh, a, a fintech uh, a, a landscape such that, that anyone can create any financial product that they want to, uh, which then leads to more products for consumers, which we think is a win. So I buy into it. Sounds amazing. But I also know the, the infrastructure in the U.S. Is, uh, is well known for being somewhat archaic and that uh, companies like Yodley have been around for a long time, screen scraping things in order to kind of pull that together. How's Plaid different? Like, like uh, is it using the sort of same approaches or is it, uh, is it using APIs into banks? How does it work? It's a great question. So uh, in the US, there are about 15,000 financial institutions um, building all sorts of different types of products. Um, you know, 3,000 or 5,000 or so uh, regulated banks, um, another 5,000 or so credit unions and, and community banks, and then another 5,000 or so um, non-bank, but bank-like products, so things like brokerage houses and so on and so forth. And so um, when, you, when you do integrations into all those, you have to have a variety of different methodologies. Um, we focus on deep partnerships with the, with the financial institutions, um, building directly into APIs that they, that they create, helping them create APIs as necessary. Um, from time to time, we will do integrations with their service providers, or if we have to, we can screen scrape. The vast majority of our data, though, comes from other sources. Less than 1% comes from screen scraping in the U.S., and as we think about expanding internationally, we're so excited for um, kind of the, the, the regulatory clarity, actually, that exists here. Sure. Uh, so with PSC2, open banking, um, that means that it's a lot more straightforward to do integrations into financial institutions. Um, of course, our, our, our focus is on building the right product for the consumer and the right product for the developer that is, that is kind of uh, using Plaid on the back end. And so we're committed to whatever methodology we need to have in order to give that, that ideal user experience. So... Uh, You've uh, announced your UK expansion, PSD2, open banking regulations, seems like a perfect time. Although, actually, you could turn around and say, well, actually, it's easy for fintechs to connect directly with open banking or PSD2. What's, what's the value add for Plaid? We've been, we've been so excited to watch fintech grow and flourish in the UK. And there are so many new companies there. It's, it's something like 1,500 different uh, fintech companies, uh, six or seven fintech unicorns. It's been a really incredible journey to watch uh, just the growth of this ecosystem, the growth of the market. Um, contrast that with the U.S., where there's only, I think, I think eight unicorns in the U.S. Um, and so just it's, it's so amazing to see uh, the U.K. grow and build these, these, these huge and, and, and ever-growing companies. Um, to, to your question, though, uh, you asked a bit about uh, how we differentiate when, when perhaps a fintech could go straight to a bank. Um, for us, data access is the foundation. It's the first step in terms of what we do. Um, we focus quite a lot on building services on top of that, of course. Um, so the, the first step for us is an amazing developer experience. We want someone to go end-to-end. -end. Developer could be in a hackathon. They can build a project in an afternoon, um, get it deployed out to all of the banks in the U.S. or all of the banks in the U.K. Um, so that's, that's the starting point. And then we create a lot of solutions on top of it. So take, for example, a lot of the work that we've done in lending, um, building products that uh, can do better analytics on top of transaction data, can help better understand cash flows, allow someone to better understand the way that they might make a loan to a consumer and how that consumer might repay. So uh, we do think that data access is really foundational, but it's, it's the first step in, in the product that we build. 
And so have you seen, I guess, through the journey of Plaid, uh, changes in, in banks' views of aggregators and fintech's views of aggregators? You know, it almost used to be a dirty word. It's like those guys who get all the data and disintermediators, and yet now they're investing in you. Like, what's the mar- how does that market evolve? Well, we certainly ho- don't hope that uh, the, the platform that we build is not a dirty word anymore. Um, but we, um, we've seen a huge change in the way that, that the industry thinks about technology, actually. So I would say it's actually that broad, where, where financial services, banks particularly, are thinking about technology in a massively different way. Uh, you heard a few years ago J.P. Morgan in the U.S. say that we are actually a technology company, uh, not that we are a bank. I mean, that, that represents just a mindset shift, a, a sea change. Um, so in the early stages of what we were building, um, of course, there were a lot of questions, a lot of hesitations. Um, we were enabling technology in a business model that had historically been done only via paper. Um, and it was a highly profitable sector. Um, banking forever has had, had a large amount of profit there. And so we were enabling technology in a way that might shift the profit pools. Um, over time, though, what we've seen is we've had this relentlessly kind of partnership-focused mentality where we say to the banks, we want to help you build the best-in-class technology for your consumers. And we say to the fintechs, we want to help you build amazing products for the consumers as well. And so we've seen it come full circle. And what was originally hesitation is now actually being met with partnership and investment. And so the banks both investing in us as a company, um, but, but more frequently we're actually seeing the banks doing partnerships with fintech companies um, and distributing fintech products into their user bases. And we've seen a bit of that uh, here in the UK and, and, and across Europe. Um, it's still early stages, um, but I suspect that we will see a great deal more over the coming few years. So we get a lot of viewers and listeners from UK fintechs, UK banks. Uh, how would they know that they should come and talk to you? Like, what, what would their use case be that it's like, you should definitely uh, come and contact Plaid? The short answer is, if you're building anything in fintech, we'd love to talk. Um, we, first and foremost, are, are focused on building an amazing ecosystem. Um, when we look at the ecosystem that exists across the UK, particularly in London, um, there's, there's tons and tons of people building really innovative products. And we're just excited to be a part of that. Um, and, and over time, we, we take a very long view. We take a decades-long view of, of how we think about fintech. And so we want to be investing in the ecosystems where we're seeing the most growth and the most possibility for, for future products. And so we'd love to talk to you about anything, truly. Um, and then if you're doing anything that interfaces with a bank directly, um, chances are we can help. Um, and the, the, the best way that we describe how we think about our customers is that they determine our product roadmap. So if you have a problem, you're, you're thinking about something that you say, yeah, I really wish this existed. Someone should just do this for me. Come talk to us. Uh, that's the feedback that we need to build a product that, 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 that is ideal for you. And what's the best way to find Plaid? So come to us uh, on the internet. You can find us at Plaid.com. Um, or you can find us on Twitter, or if you have questions, feel free to email me directly. I'm Zach at Plaid.com. Perfect. Zach, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. With Trulio, we help organizations find out if it's truly you online. Global identity verification through Trulio's digital identity network enables organizations to verify 5 billion individuals in over 190 countries to help meet KYC and AML requirements and reduce fraud around the world. Speed up your customer onboarding online from days to seconds. One contract, one integration, one solution. Visit Trulio.com today. That's T-R-U-L-I-O-O.com. Carta Worldwide provides issuer processing designed for the evolution of banking and payments. Carta is the engine behind fintech innovation around the globe, empowering new disruptors and enabling established banks to develop new products for the rapidly changing market. Carta's next generation platform excels where legacy systems are challenged, delivering adaptive, modern solutions for bank challenges 
money movers and the leading innovators of the digital economy. I'm Laura Watkins and it's my pleasure to be joined by Anne Bowden, CEO and founder of Starling. How are you today? Good, very well. Good morning, everybody. Day three of Money 2020. Yes. <laughs> How's it been for you? A very, very busy time. You know, lots of people to talk to. Um, you, know, you know, great sort of panels, great conversations, meeting old friends um, and uh, finding out about lots of new businesses. Fantastic. Sounds great. And obviously, the biggest thing you're here for is, is your new book, The Money Revolution. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, The Money Revolution is all about trying to get the word of fintech. Um, outside Shoreditch and outside the, um, well, the Money 2020 world. Um, everybody we meet here in Money 2020 knows about all the power that these new apps can give. But, um, you know, if you go outside this bubble, um, there's very little known about how fintech can really help you manage your money. Um, and this book is all about spreading that message. So is that uh, the point? Do you think it is a bubble uh, that we need to break out of to help the everyday person? Yeah, well, I think that we're doing very well in educating the people who know something about fintech. Um, but there are millions of people who not, know nothing about the power of what we're developing here in places like Money 2020 and, uh, and in, on the fintech scene as general. Um, and the idea of the money revolution is to spread that word. And why that particular angle to focus on? Is that the one that you felt was like the most important message to get out? I think the question is, there's a lot going on. Um, there's a huge amount of investment in the industry. There's lots of people working on these tools. Um, and um, very, very few people actually know about them. Um, so the idea was to well, try and spread that yeah. message. Because I guess FinTech only helps you if you know that it's there to exactly. help you. <laughs> Great. So... Um, like why now? Like what, why is now the most, or the most relevant or the best time to be spreading this message? Well, I think that we've got um, quite a lot of uh, sort of high level of penetration in the people who know something about fintech. Yeah. And the idea is that, well, wouldn't it be great if far more people around the country and around the world start engaging in this powerful um, world called fintech. Absolutely. So you launched the book here at Money 2020. How, yes, how yes. was that? Was that yesterday? It was yesterday? fantastic. And yep. um, it's great to be wandering around all these sort of yes. um, booths here and people saying, stop you and saying, you know, sort of, can they have a copy? You know, um, it's gone very, very well. And we're now a bestseller on Amazon. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, sort of in lots of categories. Um, and at one stage, Amazon ran out of stock. So oh, quite exciting for a new book. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, what is the distribution process? So if you're looking to get out of the Money 2020 bubble, where is the book? How do people get hold of it? Okay. Well, you know, you can you can find it on Amazon. Uh, we are currently available um, in the UK or on Kindle and as a physical delivered book. Uh, but we're also launching in the US on the 28th of June. Oh, fantastic. It's going international. Yes. <laughs> um, so talking about the book itself, what was the writing process for the book? And, and did you kind of enjoy that whole experience? Well, I love writing and I love writing on the go. I must admit that my t technique tends to be to put everything down in an email and then work with others to pull it together. Okay. Um, so um, the more I travel, the more I write. Oh, OK, great. So I guess you've been doing a lot of traveling if you've written a 200 page <laughs> book. <laughs> um, so... Did you work with others on it or, you know, to pull the whole thing yeah, together? Yeah. Or do you, you know, have an editing team? You know, there's a lot of content in here. There's a yeah. lot of information about the industry. And a lot of us at Starling helped with the editing process. Oh, amazing. So it's a team effort. Yeah. 
Did you have to speak to a lot of people outside of Starling and in the industry to pull it together? Well, we have them about all the time. Um, so a lot of the information comes from that sort of um, that process. Okay, fantastic. Um, and then obviously being the co-founder and, and uh, CEO of Starling, I'm imagining that they get a lot of shout outs uh, in the book. Um, and so when we're talking about Starling, like obviously you've had a huge year uh, so far. So um, how's it all going? Like <laughs> Fantastic. You know, um, well, our UK business, our retail business is now something like 650,000 customers, growing very fast. Those customers are using us for... Um, most of their financial sort of transactions, uh, we have a lot of engagement from those customers and they're very sticky. Um, we have a um, SME business, uh, which has something like 45,000 customers, which is growing very fast. And we are developing new features and functions for those SME customers all the time. And of course, um, you know, we hear at Money 2020 talking to our um, B2B customers. We have a number of um, fintechs that are here today um, and other banks and, and also governments using our B2B services. Oh, that's exciting. So is, that, is the B2B where you're kind of focusing on most at the moment? Is that the next big growth step for you guys? No, our next growth is, um, area is going to be international. We're currently oh, okay. setting up a subsidiary and a, getting a banking license in Ireland. And that will be used to um, launch our product across Europe. Oh, okay. So you're looking, are you, is Ireland your kind of springboard to the yes. rest of Europe? Yes. Fantastic. Yes. So where, where to after Ireland? Uh, probably France, Germany and the Netherlands. So great to be back here in the Netherlands yeah, it's today. Good, good time to be here, right? And then you guys are kind of all over, definitely London. We've got, uh, you know, yeah. um, cinema advertising, tube advertising. Um, is that all part of, like, getting the brand more well-known by the kind of and average the person? Thing is, <laughs> the great thing is that our customers love it when they okay. when they see, you know, sort of um, starling up in lights. Yeah, so they're like, oh, that's my bank. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously we could not mention the Remedies Fund. That's a fantastic yeah. win for you guys. Can you kind of tell us about the process behind that and, and what you thought would come out of it? Did you expect to win or was it like a nice surprise? Or <laughs> Well, we put a lot of work into it. The... Um, the Capability and Innovation Fund um, is to fund organizations that can really challenge the status yeah. quo, that can really move market share from the big banks. Um, and it was a very, very rigorous process. Yeah. And we worked very, very hard. I can imagine. And you know, in the final weeks, we worked long into the night to get that submission dressed right. Um, uh, we weren't surprised to be awarded the grant. Um, uh, but it was really, really a relief to know that we're now in a position to deliver that you know, wonderful set of new features and functions to that SME sector. Oh, so that's your, ne your plan for the money. Yeah. Can you tell us about any of those products or are they still in development? They're still in development, uh, but the idea is over the next period, a couple of years, we'll be um, really talking to customers what they really want and then developing those functions. Sounds great. So for the process, how long did it take end to end? Like, was this months, years? <laughs> this, is, this is months. Yeah. Um, we knew about the, the process, you know, sort of about six months in advance and we had about three months to prepare the application. Oh, wow. And so... Um, you were saying about it being uh, the aim is to challenge the status quo. Were you quite happy that most of the winners were challenger banks rather than the more traditional banks that were yeah, also bidding? I think bidding? there's been a range of banks being awarded the grant. Um, you know, the, uh, there's four pools, pool A, yeah. B, C and D. Um, a was for people who had uh, organisations that had established uh, current accounts for business. Yeah. Uh, and then right down to the C's and the D's, which are for 
innovative uh, smaller companies yeah. um, so I think there's a whole range of awards going out there that's going to really stir up the market for SMEs and hopefully um, SMEs in the UK will get a better deal from their banks as a result. Which can only be good news, right? Yes. Like we've been yeah. talking a lot, particularly on this podcast and more generally about the SMEs being the most underserved yeah. sector yeah. at the moment. So uh, you think things are moving in the right direction? Well, this- with these grants, um, we have a huge boost to the, the fintech industry in the UK. Absolutely. Um, and so you were awarded the best British bank and the best yeah. current account yeah. provider yeah. earlier in the year. Congratulations. Uh, what, what do kind of accolades like that mean for Starling? I, I think that you know, we mustn't spend too much of our time just um, going after the awards. I think the important thing is that customers really get benefit from our, from our um, products. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we spend far more time talking about to real customers about the real benefit they get from Starling mm-hmm. than seeking out awards. Although the recognition must be nice as well, yeah. right? <laughs> very nice, very nice. Um, so just briefly touching on open banking and, and the strategy yeah. kind of there. Um, from a traditional banking perspective, the uptake hasn't been like great, but from a challenger bank perspective, do you think that's different? Is there more that can be done with open banking, seeing as it's been I in process for a while? open banking and PSD2 are the right things to do. Um, but achieving that objective is very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, for the big banks, it's very technically difficult delivering uh, the requirements. Yeah. For new banks such as ourselves that are built on an API um, sort of uh, infrastructure, it's relatively easy. Mm-hmm. And the big banks are taking some time to catch up. Yeah. But this only works if everybody's playing the same game. And it'll take longer, but it will eventually get there. Um, I'm a big believer in the API economy, and getting it right will give consumers and SMEs um, a, a better competitive environment uh, that allows their businesses uh, and their financial affairs to thrive. Which is the ultimate end goal, right? Absolutely. So looking ahead to the future with Starling Bank and everything that you're doing, what's kind of your overall vision? What are you aiming for long term? Well, things are very, very exciting at the moment. We're growing very fast. Um, we, are, we, we are focusing now on both our SME business, um, um, growing our retail business in the UK, and an international expansion. Um, you know, every day at Starling is full of activity, full of listening to what people want from us and delivering. We work very, very quickly, um, and our objective um, is to make a real difference on the scene, not just um, in the UK, but on an international perspective. And your, your sort of company tagline is like better banking for everyone. So I guess that ties in nicely into everything that you're doing under that umbrella. Yeah, we, we're ambitious. Um, but the important thing is to get there in the right way. Um, you know, how we do things is very, very important to Starling, not just what we do. Um, everybody working at Starling believes in um, people having a better set of financial products to use that help people with their financial life. And is that really important to you as the, the kind of company co-founder that everybody does buy into that like kind of value set, not just what you're doing, but the how and the why? Yeah, um, I found it, Starling, because after 30 odd years in, in traditional banking, um, people were trying to put together the system again the way it was before the financial crisis. Something had to change. Um, it was essential um, that we needed to move forward. And in 2014, I founded Starling um, to help consumers and businesses 
and the infrastructure of banking as a whole um, to you know to to keep up with what is happening in all other aspects of the um, of the financial world and the technology world. Fantastic. So before we wrap up, let's quickly talk about about you, your background and, and the kind of learnings that you've got from your career. I know you just touched on kind of 30 years in, in traditional banking. Um, so what do you know now that you wish you'd known maybe 10, 5, 10 years ago, looking back? I guess there was the financial crisis just over 10 years ago. Is there any learnings there that you kind of wish you'd known? Okay. <laughs> um, I think that I've had um, and continued to have a, a very interesting career. Um, I started as a computer scientist uh, back in the early, early 80s. And I've worked around the world in banking institutions on big technology and operational roles. Um, uh, my only regret is that uh, perhaps I didn't become an entrepreneur earlier. Okay, um, I absolutely love it. Um, it's a wonderful uh, position to be in. Um, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, lots going on, yeah. and I'm really, really looking forward to the, um, you know. The, the next set of tech, yeah. the next set of innovation, um, and how are we going to really help people with their financial lives? Fantastic. It sounds like you get a real buzz from the entrepreneurial yeah. side. Fantastic. And so what's the best careers advice you would give or have been given that you could pass on to someone else? Never be satisfied. You know, okay. always, always seek the next move, the next, uh, the next project, the next promotion. Um, uh, your life and your work are so intertwined um, and we spend so much time in work that it's very, very important that you get a lot from it. So never be satisfied, um, sort of aim high and enjoy every minute of it. Oh, brilliant. Well, on that note, <laughs> what, where can people find out more about you and Starling Bank? Well, you can find out about Starling Bank at starlingbank.com. Um, you can find out about the book the money revolution there it is um, right there you know, sort of on amazon <laughs> or on our website um we we love talking to um, real people about their financial needs so so please get in touch fantastic thank you so much for joining me today thank you i'm simon taylor and i'm joined by frank i'm not even going to try and say your last name from yolt frank how are you doing yeah, very good yeah. great to be here uh frank uh, of course uh you have been at yolt for quite some time now as the ceo and yolt uh, for those who aren't familiar with yolt do you want to remind everybody who yolt is yeah yolt is a smart money platform built on the promise of open banking so we bring your data your financial data into one view and on top of that we have our smart models to find ways how you can spend smarter your money what are opportunities and together with our ecosystem of partners, we make really end-to-end -end journeys to switch subscriptions, find better products, and uh, that's what we're doing. And you guys uh, were a spin-out from ING. Uh, my understanding is that's still the parent organization for you guys. Um, I think there's a really interesting story there that people often don't realize that big companies can do interesting things too, And uh, but you guys are built like a startup, act like a startup, governed like a startup. Yeah, yeah, I think it's quite a unique place to be in on the edges of such a large company. Yeah. Uh, officially, we are a kind of a corporate venture, so yeah. partially hanging on the side of the uh, of the parent, but also acting indeed as a separate company. So we can leverage on what's good of ING, but also definitely find what's out there and to make a compelling proposition. You guys are definitely an interesting case study for sure. So, uh, you've, uh, so to catch everybody up, I mean, Money 2020 has been pretty busy for you. Your first announcement was that you've announced a partnership with Raisin at Money 2020 and you uh, partnered with them because uh, uh, they are in fact a savings marketplace. 
why did you partner with uh, Raisin and, and what does the partnership do? Yeah, so we're continually looking to what are uh, great partnerships to extend our money proposition. And when we talk about money, saving is, of course, very closely related to that. And uh, when scanning the market, there are just a handful of saving platforms in the European market. And with Raisin, we find a proposition or a collaboration to easily integrate their proposition into Yolt app so that users staying in Yolt app can find what are best saving propositions and switch to those products. It feels like a natural partnership because you've naturally aggregated all of their existing accounts, but now you're able to bring them lots of potential new savings accounts in, in a sort of marketplace fashion. And it's weird because it's like a marketplace meets a marketplace, but it sort of works for the customer. Uh, that's what we will be seeing in, in when we're launching. But uh, we, when we're talking with our consumer uh, customers of the old app, we see that saving is definitely in, in, in need in there. And also, um, if we look to the current uh, interest rates which bank offer, I think that's also the model of Raisin, that they offer access to a full European saving platform, that you can also see, okay, what are opportunities outside your current uh, country? And that's also a model where I think open banking will really accelerate these kind of partnerships. That's, uh, open banking really has been like a big subject here at uh, Money 2020, but I think a lot of people talk a good game about Money 2020, but very few have been able to really announce what they've done and say, hey, we've done it. And, and so I think that puts you in an interesting place. And you guys have announced, hey, we've done it. There's 900,000 registered users. Congratulations. I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, you're, what, you're two years old, 900,000 users. It's pretty significant. That must feel pretty good. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, it was a first mover advantage, I think, uh, as well. So we started back in 2017 before Open Bank started to get our position and we invested a lot of time with the banks to find how this model will work. And, and the good thing of being there first is that you now can scale faster. On the other hand, we also seen that it took a lot of effort uh, to connect with the banks. But now, Having all those lessons learned, we also see that we can take them to our next countries like Italy and France to rapidly connect with banks and to scale further. So of those 900,000 users, are most of them based in the UK or are there a good chunk that are outside? The majority is UK. Uh, so we launched in Italy and France in the beginning of this year. Um, we see that there we're mainly exploring like the markets and to see how copyable our business model is. But especially in France, we see the last weeks really taking off and uh, also due to the fact that there are already quite some platforms in this space. Um, Italy, we will see that after the summer when we reach the deadline of PS2 around September, I think that will be more moment to scale to make our next step in these markets. I mean, it's interesting timing and I think it's, a, a, again, a great case study. Um, so I'm curious though, uh, there's that consumer side and, and that seems to be going well, but you've also got the business side to what you do. So you serve businesses um, and you've announced there that uh, Yolp for Business API is going to be supporting open banking capabilities for three new clients. So what is the open the Yolp for Business API? Yeah, so when we were working in uh, back in 2016 with the CMA9 banks in the UK, we uh, we worked very closely with them to make the connections with the banks. And at that point, uh, we saw, okay, this is a, a big investment. Um, and on the other hand, we, um, we saw that this capability might be also suitable for other businesses. And when we were scaling, reaching the half a million users, we had a lot of companies knocking our door. Can we use this technology as well? Because the effort of making these connections, I'm not going to do it. So that's kind of um, start thinking about, okay, in this ecosystem where we connect with partners, can we also share capabilities? And this is the product of that. So we will be powering these businesses with open bank capabilities um, to scale yeah, their 
businesses uh, on this technique, which currently is, is a challenge to get in place. But I think my, my vision on it is that eventually it's not really like a sustainable competitive advantage having these connections. It's about what are you going to do with this data. Uh, what have been your learnings uh, as you look at both the consumer and the SME space? I see a lot of um, vendors uh, here, you know, sort of helping uh, organizations with open banking platforms and open banking as a service. You guys have probably gone and, and forged ahead of that before a lot of these people were really in the market. As you look at open banking and there are many organizations really starting to think about where the opportunities are, you know, what are you looking at in the next coming year, two years as to where you think the opportunities are? So I think that for the coming period, it's mainly getting the coverage throughout Europe. And we will see that banks will be ready for the deadline. There will be also a big major group of banks who will not be ready. So I foresee that in the coming two years, it will be a process of connecting, trying, getting the arrows out of it to create a stable connection landscape. And then I think if we have that in place, then you will see that also the opportunity side will be more there. How can we put the data to work? We, on the Yolt app side, we do that via partnerships, but on the Yolt for Business side, I see a lot of opportunities, but we first have to nail the connection side and getting also next to that, the, the payment initiation ready. So it will be investing. It will be a hard journey to get it connected, but then one and a half, two years, it should be stable enough to really see, okay, this uh, is- it's, it's gonna be interesting times. And I think you guys are, are well placed to, to kind of take advantage of some of that sort of stuff. So uh, I'm really curious to see what comes next from you guys. If, if uh, I'm a consumer and I'm interested in Yolt or uh, I just wanna learn more about what you're doing for the Yolt for Business API, where would I go to find out more? So if you're in UK, Italy and France, go to the app stores to download the Yolt app. If you want to know more about Yolt for Business, go to our website or get in contact directly with me. Frank, thank you so much for joining us on Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Tamaz Jordazi. Did I say that right? That's perfect. Uh, you are the CEO of Raisin. How's, uh, how's life, sir? It's good, thank you, and thanks uh, for being invited to the podcast. Oh, no, Fintech Insider loves to have uh, Raisin. Um, shout out to uh, Sarah Kachansky, one of our hosts, uh, who's not with us, who's a huge fan of what you guys do. So uh, she would not forgive me if I did not mention that. Um, but let's start at the start. You founded Raisin back in 2012. Could you give us a quick overview of what Raisin is and what it does? Yeah, so basically Raisin is a marketplace approach to savings, uh, mainly. Um, if you think about it, almost half or more than half of the Europeans' private financial assets are in uh, bank savings, bank deposits. And the area has not been innovated for the last 100 years or more. Uh, so you go bank by bank, you open your account, the bank tries to squeeze you and reduces the rate quite quickly, then you turn to the next bank and it gets so tedious you drop it and you do not optimize your savings part. So that uh, if you take the European market as a whole, 12 trillion of assets are not optimized. Uh, uh, so that's just a small number. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a big number. So it's, uh, uh, it's more than half of uh, private, uh, private household wealth. And you can optimize it quite nicely in the way that you typically do with the marketplace. So you integrate uh, uh, a couple of providers. You allow the customer to switch conveniently to do one KYC process and to have one interface and then uh, let him choose out of the offers available. And that's the basic idea. So to have a marketplace access to the savings area and then we do it directly to the customer through our European platforms like RaisinNL or Welchbahn in Germany uh, but we also do it through um, 
uh, B2B partnerships, so we'll offer uh, our API to third-party providers like N26 or, or Two Banking. There will be one other announcement tomorrow here in, uh, at Mon uh, Money 2020, so that they can integrate the experience in a white-label way. Uh, sure. So you've got a panel of lenders on the back end. In the middle, you've got your platform, and then on the front end, you've got challenger banks with APIs that can connect in, so that the challenger banks can offer their customers the panel of lenders through your platform. Correct. That's the basic idea. So the lenders take deposits from us and the challenger bank doesn't need to build up deposits themselves and do it capital light manner and still give the customer a marketplace experience. And so much money is sitting in bank accounts, uh, like you said at the beginning, uh, that is actually losing money. Like having my money in savings actually loses me money because of inflation. So the ability to shop around is, is absolutely crucial. Otherwise, the banks do become complacent. Um, but fast forwarding to today, you're the number one deposit marketplace in Europe across 30 countries from 2012. How have you handled that growth and how did you get banks and lenders to, to come on board? Yeah, so um, indeed, uh, the most challenging part on the marketplace build-up was from day one to Pursuate Banks to join the platform out of the obvious reason. First is, at the beginning, you are just small with, with no real business. So uh, the use case of or the benefit for them of joining the platform at the beginning uh, was smaller than it is right now. On the other side, you are an untested fintech, so that the things you are building, they are probably not fully audited. You are creating, co-creating them with the, with the banks. So that uh, the challenge was quite, uh, quite big. Uh, uh, when we launched, actually, in our first full year, 2014, we just uh, had uh, onboarded five banks in total throughout the whole year. So this year already we are, today we launched our partner bank number 78, and we launched already more than 30 banks only this year, year to date, so 30 wow. new banks. So we ramped up on this. What helps is, of course, the size, the maturity, different flexible ways to integrate with the banks, different currency areas we're serving. We're serving uh, euro, of course, we're serving pound, we're serving also US dollar deposits, so that in that sense, wow. uh, uh, also the toolkit which we have is, is bigger. I mean, it's, it's a really impressive platform, and it's uh, it's kind of a, it's an interesting one, because I think a lot of uh, organizations have talked about the marketplace model, but you've not really seen anybody deliver on that. So how do you guys make money? You know, is, is it uh, fees on either side? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. And, and how's that been able to fuel your business? So before we launched, we wanted actually to explore where is the willingness to pay. We asked, first of all, customers, because our customers are individuals. So we're creating value for them and we're maxing out the, the best interest for them. So are they willing to pay? What came out, roughly 50% had stated interest to open accounts with us. But out of those, only 20% were willing to pay anything. Uh, and and anything was then like very low monthly fees. So um, that would not have been enough for the business model. So we turned to banks and uh, asked them to pay um, because we're doing quite a lot of services for them. So for them, we simplify launching a market very much. We have our own call service, uh, call center and customer service. They do not need to take care of this. Wow, so they can just deploy lending to another market with your platform quite Correct. easily. Correct, so deposit gathering in that case. So they, Because they you've can, done the KYC as well? We've done the KYC, we've done, uh, we're doing customer service, we're doing customer acquisition. So it's for them a completely no risk um, diversification because they're not paying any base, base fee or anything, it's just... And what are you regulated as in order to be able to do the KYC? 
So we are regulated as deposit brokers in the majority of the countries. In some countries we are um, investment brokers as well because where we have investment products, plus we own a fully licensed bank in Germany. Oh wow. Um, the KYC part of it we're always doing together with our white label bank providers. One of them being the bank which we own in Germany, MHB Bank, but also with uh, Starling Bank in the UK. So all our accounts in the UK are with Starling Bank. And then uh, in Belgium, we use Keytrade, which is the largest broker in the country. They belong to Credit Mutuel Arkea. So that there is a bank involved, which does KYC part and payments part for our business model. That's a really good mix. I think the interesting thing there is this patchwork of uh, sort of challenger organizations that you've been able to bring together in order to offer a full service offering. It almost feels like you guys are the, um, the hidden success story, but actually you're not hidden. I mean, uh, when we're looking at your recent fundraising, you're actually one of the better funded startups in Europe. You raised 170 million euros from Index Ventures, a major tier one VC, and of course PayPal. So what was that fundraise for and, uh, and, and how did you sort of uh, go about getting those, uh, those investors? Sure. So um, I think for us it was uh, much more difficult to raise at the beginning than now. And the reason is, um, first of all, if you think about this area savings, it's not exciting. So as you say, there is a lot of cash sitting idle around, but no one really uh, cares about it. Plus, if you put yourself in investor shoes, they are not big deposit users themselves. So first investors we've talked to were more excited about, oh guys, are you doing also cryptocurrency at some point in time? They wanted the sexy stuff, yeah. They wanted the sexy, the sexy stuff. So, um, so that we actually need to show some success to be able to, to raise larger tickets. Um, and uh, the good thing is that what people realize is that uh, actually the market we're serving, the moms and dads with small accounts uh, and uh, like retail and affluent customer base, they're completely left out from the wealth management, low fee, customer friendly model, so that they are left actually with incumbent banks whose model is broken in this segment. And they're the ones that need a return more than anybody in the market because you know it's fine for rich people to get richer, but it's the people who don't have a lot who really need a good savings sure. account. And if you think like who has a lot on deposits compared to their total wealth, it's of course this middle market because the like uh, people who are just uh, on the verge of it, they do have neither, and people who are rich mostly have wealth management products, and they have capital market access, and they have other asset classes like PE. And so they're well we, served, aren't they? Yeah, they are, they're, they're well they're, served. Uh, and the it? middle market is the market which, so for example, in Germany, if you look at the uh, retail investor, they're paying uh, on average 2.3% in annual investment product fees. 2.3%. Uh, 2.3%? Yes. And so if I've got a 5% annual return, then my fees are killing me. Yeah, if you have 5% on average. But the other thing is the uh, advisor doesn't help you also to discipline yourself because what they enforce is the market timing play of the customer. Because, of course, he calls you when the markets are very hot. He calls you and says, look, your neighbor earned a lot of money. Why don't you try now? So yeah, that's, uh, and you FOMO into the market. Correct. So that's uh, actually that is one part of the market we're serving. And on the savings part, the returns, majority of the population is with the large banks and there the rates are almost zero so that they do not utilize the switching possibility and to go to this um, like neobank specialized lenders who offer actually quite attractive interest rates. Yeah, and, and you're seeing some innovative products in that space. What, what do you think about the um, some of the micro savings platforms that are emerging? Uh, I look at things like Acons, like Plum, like uh, 
Clio and Clio and uh, Chip and all of those sorts of things. Do you think they, they have a role in the market? I think they definitely have a role in the market because I think uh, if you think about younger consumers, for them, uh, the bigger issue than putting the money to work is to how to discipline yourself to put money aside. And um, so for them, uh, we love working with those guys because for them, we are uh, a um, actually product utility in the background so that once they discipline the customer, they can help the customer then also to put the money uh, into a better yielding uh, savings account. I think our use cases are very complementary. That's good stuff. And I mentioned Acorns as well. Uh, last month's reports came out that you're launching in the US. Can you tell us, uh, are you looking at the US and, um, and, and why is the US an interesting market for you? So if uh, compared to uh, the European market, it has uh, one big advantage is that the nominal rates are clearly above zero. Um, and uh, if you look at the market, then like the large incumbent banks still pay zero or very close to zero. So I think the average of the uh, five largest US banks is 0.03, so uh, very close to zero. And then on the market, you have uh, savings accounts with 25 to 3%, so that there is a big uh, improvement uh, possible for the customer. And customers, of course, react to uh, this upside potential uh, very much more positively than they do in Europe with a, with a uh, smaller uh, upside in there. So um, higher returns. The second one is um, the uh, banking market in the US is... Uh, are rather uh, very large in terms of there are 8,000 different licenses on the market. So a lot of regional lenders, a lot of industrial uh, lenders, a lot of specialist lenders, yeah. uh, which is good for our business model. Uh, so that we can connect both uh, people who are shopping around and who want convenience in shopping and the banks who are looking for funding. It's, uh, it's a really interesting market. Um, so I guess, does your, does your model stay the same? You're still going to be the marketplace, but the margins are different and it's an attractive market. Um, and also, um, you know, is there anything you're going to do differently than what you've done in Europe or is it going to be a very similar play? It will be different in the US than in Europe because the market is served differently. Um, it's served also largely through brokers as well. Um, also, the features which we have uh, uh, in uh, Europe, which are largely also driven by performance marketing in the beginning, that's much more expensive than the US. So the market is so different that we are tailoring our model very much to the, to the US. That's a, that's a great thing to be able to have. And you guys keep getting listed as one of the top 50 European fintechs. Is that something that's important to you or is it just a nice, nice thing to have? Um, actually, it is. Uh, and... Um, the um, reason why is uh, we uh, very much need credibility in front of banks so that uh, on both sides so those who actually uh, gather funding through us and also those who uh, integrate our product like Commerzbank for example for SME and corporate customers they are selecting their partner based on a number of criteria like funding like stability of operations but the other one is there is a digital manager who also looks for fame so yes. he wants to have a good name or a tap name and, and his partner list. I think there's something really interesting to be said about um, market momentum and credibility in the market and, and the power of a different kind of marketing that's sort of come along. Uh, the bank venture teams have started increasingly to look at, have I seen them on TechCrunch, uh, which you guys have been you know, 
really covered in, in the tech press. Uh, have I uh, heard them on the podcast? Have I? And actually, that seems to be quite different to five, six years ago, where you know the trade show was enough in its own right. But now it's the trade show and everything around it that seems to become a, a, a bigger deal. So it's a real mix, and I think the market's really changed. How do you feel about um, the consumers' attitudes? Do you feel like uh, the consumer uh, is able to really get the products they need in the market? And what motivates you, kind of, with with where the consumer's head is at? I think um, um, we, uh, so if you look at our brand awareness in Germany, for example, so there was a recent report where around um, 25 to 30% added brand awareness, which is not too much. So we are still, so, and, and we have, I think, on the market one of the highest brand awarenesses of a fintech product. Uh, um, wow. uh, so we are still far away from being a mass proposition. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the, um, I think the forces are there that help us uh, because people realize that there are new offers and they uh, help them discipline, help them save, they are much more low fee. Um, still, um, if you look at direct to the consumer, banking is one of the stickiest areas ever because people stay with their bank on average for 25 plus years, so longer than an average marriage. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it's very hard to get them away uh, and yeah. to, to get them to this uh, move. If they change, in our case, they put actually a lot of money into it. So it's not like a, it's my second or third account. It gradually becomes their first savings uh, hub or first savings yeah. account. Um, but the change needs a lot more marketing spend, a lot more PR on our side. So and. That's your initial question, like, what do we use 100 million for? Significant portion of this 100 million, it's not for, it's, it's, it's just the marketing money. It's going to be interesting to watch for sure. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the uh, kind of questions that we have in terms of uh, raising itself. But I want to talk to you, uh, Thomas. Um, I want to learn a little bit about the learnings over your career. So tell me, uh, for the fintech listener, uh, what do you know today that you wish you knew five or ten years ago, uh, having been through this journey? I think so first um, it's when when you're at the beginning you are like with two or three or four people together so you dream big but you do not really believe it so um, I think uh, what we European founders all lack is a bit of aspirational aspiration not the vision I mean the vision is there but how much force do you put behind it and if you look at the American founders then the visions are much bigger and much more aspirational so uh, I would have wished back then, five or ten years ago, that I believed in our success and product vision and everything much more than I actually did. It's really interesting. Have more belief. Uh, Have more belief because you are more persuasive to the outside world. You are more aggressive on hiring. You are doing like... uh, And uh, we Europeans and Germans, and uh, so we're much more conservative in the way we grow, in the way we... we, Uh, we invest. That's an interesting one. Um, and uh, finally, what, what is next for Raisin? What, what does the future look like? So we're expanding. So we started one year ago. We started going uh, savings and investment products. We'll be um, bringing out further investment products into our into our shelf. We're uh, going for one of the things you mentioned is the um, like micro savings uh, functionality. We reduced our savings plan threshold in uh, in uh, Germany to 50 euro for our investment position, even lower than that for uh, for the overnight uh, money, so that we are making the product more flexible and more mass market. Um, and uh, we are going for further countries. So US is 
just one of the uh, next market entries and we will be launching soon in Ireland and in other European countries as well with dedicated platforms. Fantastic stuff. Thomas, like, thank you so much for joining us on Fintech Insider. Uh, where can people find out more about what you're up to at Raisin? Uh, so um, visit Raisin.com because there we have also a corporate information and then we're a lot on the conferences. We're open to talk and uh, uh, yeah, and happy to stay in touch with you too. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much to our amazing CEOs, Ralph, Des, Nuno, Zach, and Frank-Yan and Tamaz. Thank you very much for listening. As always, if you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss one of these episodes. And if you really love us, leave us a review. For more content, follow us over on social media. Just search Fintech Insider on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. That's all we have for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.